0: All right, brethren, let's uh, turn in our Bibles to Romans and chapter 14. I will read from verse 13 to verse 19. Romans chapter 14, verse 13 to verse 19. The Bible reads, beginning with verse 13, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus saves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Well, brethren, we are looking at the theme of uh, the glorious kingdom of God. And part of the reason why we have given that adjective of gloriousness is in order for us to make it stand out and stand apart from all the other kingdoms and empires that have characterized human history. This is the kingdom of God is a kingdom that all of us as individuals between the time we are born and the time we die ought to make sure that we become citizens of and we spent a bit of time in looking at 1st Corinthians chapter 6 appreciating that then we also have seen that this is uh, one that is ruled over by the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one that we truly ought to worship in time, and indeed we will also do so in eternity. Uh, Some of us in genuine joy, uh, while others will be forced to do so, because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and confess him, to be lord of all. So we spent a bit of time looking at this great god. Yesterday we spent our time looking at uh, the first aspect of the distinct peculiarities of this kingdom and we primarily dealt with the negative. In other words, we spent our time seeing what the peculiarities of the kingdom are not, and that is in the words of the Apostle Paul: the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now, before we went into those words, I deliberately wanted us to to find ourselves in that position that the um, Christians in in Rome would have found themselves in, and you remember. I deliberately took us on um, a, a bit of a brief journey, beginning with the time when we seriously want to find ourselves to be citizens in this kingdom. That, in fact, we very few of us think in terms of the life of the kingdom itself. We think in terms of what we are running away from, which is the being on the wrong side of God, having our sins forgiven, um, and also what we want to find ourselves in, ultimately, in heaven. That's the main thing that brings us to the foot of the cross, and that's the main thing that causes us to jump into the air with three shouts of hallelujah. Okay, that now I am reconciled to God. However, Soon after that, we realize that we are now not only individuals going to heaven, but we are with others too. And it is this aspect of being with others that begins to raise the kind of issues that were there in the church in Rome, individuals that we ought to be praying together with individuals that we ought to be learning together with, individuals that we ought to be serving together with. But when we find that there are certain aspects about their lives that we don't like, we are uncomfortable with, we think believers ought not to be doing this and so on, those aspects make this common life to end up being difficult. And it's that which the Apostle Paul then deals with in a chapter like this. We noticed uh, yesterday that he argued against making externals to be the primary uh, distinguishing peculiarities of the kingdom of God. Because, as I said yesterday, eating and drinking... A person can do that and do it correctly and go to hell after that because it is external to the individual. It does not in itself represent the state of the heart. We spent quite a bit of time on that yesterday. Today, we move on to consider the distinct peculiarities of the kingdom, but this time we're now looking at those that are positive. And the Apostle Paul deliberately contrasts the negative with the positive with that word but, but. And it is deliberate. He wants to put a sharp contrast between that which we should not be looking at, and that which we should be concentrating on. That this is, in fact, the way in which God's kingdom manifests itself. It has three strands that the Apostle Paul speaks about. Um, And it is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll deliberately leave the Holy Spirit for tomorrow because there's a lot that we need to learn concerning his person and his work. For today, I simply want us to concentrate on that which the Holy Spirit alone has the power to produce and therefore makes the Christian faith stand out distinctly from everything else on the planet. It makes this kingdom unique. So let's look at each one of these one by one. The first essential peculiarity of the citizens of the kingdom of God is righteousness. Righteousness. Now, Righteousness in one sense could be understood as the righteousness of Christ that is given to us in our records in heaven so that God may declare us righteous before him. Not based on our own righteousness, for we have none, but based on the righteousness of God's own son. However, that's not the righteousness that the Apostle Paul has in mind here. Rather, he has in mind uprightness. He has in mind moral living. He has in mind what he was referring to in the passage we studied in First Corinthians chapter 6, when he said, speaking in the negative, 1 Corinthians 6, He says there, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he has primarily in mind there sinners, individuals who are living lives that contradict the law of God. The moral standards of God, God's ethical righteousness. And you see it there when it says, "Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, no adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, no drunkards, nor revilers, no swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those who are living in sin cannot be part of this kingdom. Now, they can be members of the church. They can be individuals who have been baptized. But certainly, they are not individuals that Jesus has said. Is told um, of a, a, a gentleman who was um, a drunkard who one day came to Charles Haddon Spurgeon and still in his drunken state said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon said to him, yes, you must be, but you're definitely not Jesus' convert. Because ultimately... When Jesus serves, he changes a person from the inside out. Which is what the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 11 concerning those who are in the kingdom. He says there, and such were some of you when you were on the outside. But look at what has happened. But you were washed, you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So it's not just justification so that we might be celebrating the fact that in my records in heaven, I have the righteousness of Jesus. It is also this washing, this sanctification taking place on earth. So that's the righteousness that the Apostle Paul is talking about here, that characterizes those who are the people of God. Another reason why we can be convinced that Paul is not primarily talking about justification here is because he's talking about the, the distinct characteristics that you see That then either says to you, he's not one of us, or says to you, he's one of us. And therefore, we can have fellowship together, we can pray together, we can learn from one another, we can serve Christ together. Now, none of us have any preview of the files in heaven where Jesus Christ's righteousness is. We don't. But what we have is each other's lives to see. And it is that righteousness that the Apostle Paul is concerned about here. And the issue that we must be strong about is this. That you see, Jesus doesn't just save us from the hell that sin takes us to. He saves us from the sin that takes us to hell. We must never be embarrassed about talking about that and insisting on it. Because surely, if a doctor has cured you, you should be cured. We have too many individuals back home in Africa who are declared healed by prophets. And they're still on their sick beds. And now they're being blamed for their own lack of faith. Now surely, Jesus is not like that. If he has healed you of sin's disease, you yourself will be able to say, Free at last, he's dealt with me graciously. It's not just the Apostle Paul who was very concerned about this and insisted on it. It was also the, the um, apostle of love, John. In First John and chapter 3, this is the way he puts it. First John and chapter 3. I begin with verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, meaning hopes in Jesus Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. And that is referring to ethical purity, moral purity. He's talking about uprightness. Look at the way he puts it in verse 4 downwards. I'll try and... Uh, Limit my comments because this passage speaks for itself. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Now listen to this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Listen to this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God no is the one who does not love his brother let me say it again that's a peculiar distinction or a distinct peculiarity of those who belong to the kingdom of God it is That Jesus has transformed us morally from the inside out. At one time, we loved sin and hated righteousness. There's been a complete overhaul. And now, we love righteousness and we hate sin. Not just other people's sins, but our sins too. And that's the reason why we are pressing on towards more and more godliness in our own individual lives. Well, that's the first. Let's hurry on to the second. The first essential peculiarity of righteousness should not surprise us. What should perhaps surprise us is the second one and it is peace, peace. We don't normally think of peace as something that distinguishes the children of God. Perhaps peace between ourselves and God, that vertical reconciliation, that vertical fellowship, with the living God, the Bible speaks about it, that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 5 and verse 1. Perhaps that one, we tend to think of it as, yes, it is an essential ingredient. The Apostle Paul in this text is not primarily speaking about that. Although, I repeat, as we saw about uh, righteousness, there is that as well. But Paul primarily has in mind the the peace that is enjoyed in the horizontal relationships between the people of God. Remember, as was the case with righteousness, Paul's concern is about what you can see in one another. That's that's his concern in this passage. It's not so much concerned about what is hidden in your heart or hidden in your records in heaven. No, no, no. he's, He's talking about that which you are seeing and consequently is drawing you to pray together to serve together, to be in a context of mutual edification or the exact opposite. So this peace is the one he refers to, for instance, in verse 19 when he says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. What makes for peace. Now, the best way to appreciate this is by looking at the exact opposite. Sin. Sin is destructive by its very nature. It's destructive. It's one that is violent and vicious. Sin is so self-centered that in the end, it hurts other people. And because it is hurting other people, they also tend to also respond in the same way. Sin is toxic by its nature. And we we know that. There are individuals who... If you are new in the church and you befriend them, within a month or two, they've told you what everybody has done against them and what they've done against those other people and so on. And you begin to feel as though you are just in the midst of enemies. Because they are toxic. And they themselves before long... Turn around against you. To begin with, you were their darling. But it was because you were someone who was massaging their ego. Somewhere along the lines, you just say, no, no, look, I I don't agree with you about this. That's it. You also join their enemies. A sin is jealous. It's envious. So that when other people are making progress, sinners feel as though they are retrogressing. And therefore, they want to pull down people that might be making progress. There's jealousy. There is envy. And That's been the story of mankind right across history. I mean, think of Genesis 3. Sin enters into the world. In that relationship that was there between Adam and Eve, the first marriage, Adam had earlier on been singing that wonderful song, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Well, sin comes in, and when God says to him, Adam, what has happened? His response was, it's this woman. Very quick, this woman, whom you dumped here with me. She is the cause of all my trouble. That's what sin does to us. And when the first two brothers mature and begin to live, each one in his own distinct career path, well, one murders the other. For what? What wrong did he do to him? Nothing. It was simply the fact that one brother's offering was accepted by God. This one, his offering was not. Jealousy, envy causes him to murder his own blood brother. And by the time we get into Genesis 6... God is saying, enough is enough. Too much bloodshed. The earth is full of violence. I'll put an end to all this. And hence the flood in Noah's day. Well, that's the world. What does salvation do for us? Well, it makes us peacemakers. The Lord Jesus Christ, in His famous sermon on the Mount, in Matthew and chapter five, puts it this way. He says, "Blessed are the peacemakers." In verse um, verse nine, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God." They shall be called sons of God. That's what Jesus does to us. In other words, this peace that we enjoy with God makes us selfless. We're not always thinking about ourselves and our joy and our progress and our this and our that. We, in fact, become a channel of the love that God, through Christ, wants to shed abroad in his world and especially among the people of God. And hence, we are constantly thinking in terms of how can I be a blessing to my brother and to my sister? And we know that we can only really be a blessing in an atmosphere of peace, an atmosphere peace. Of peace. Now, just one more point there about this peace. And it is a peace that prevails among people despite the fact that they are not perfect yet. They are not perfect yet. Just quickly turn with me to Colossians and chapter 3. Colossians 3. There's also. Ephesians chapter 4, but that, that one I'll leave for now. Um, if you're taking notes, you can add it there. It will be Colossians, Ephesians 4 verse, verse 3. But I'm interested in Colossians. And the reason why I'm interested in it um, is because as it opens up, you can see that it's, it's talking about the real world. Look at verse 12. It says, there, put on then As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. Now that's the Christian church. Being patient with one another. Bearing with one another as we rub each other the wrong way. And if you have a complaint, learning to forgive one another. And it says that. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ, notice, this is first of all ruling in the heart, but notice this. The peace of Christ rule in your hearts, and then it says, to which indeed you were called in one body. In other words, that which is ruling in the heart induces and manifests itself in our interpersonal relationships So that we end up being one body. And then he says, and be thankful. Then you begin to see the atmosphere there being one of mutual edification. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is what Paul is referring to. This is genuine love. This is real concern for the brethren. This is not me going around tail bearing, telling everybody else what you've done wrong and never coming to tell you yourself. Perhaps under the guise of looking for prayer partners. This is not me coming to you with hellfire to correct you about simply the fact that you know, you didn't park your car very well in the car park. <laughs> Which clearly shows that I, I must have been with some anger already burning in me. This is now just the, the last straw that breaks the camel's back. What the Chinese proverb says, uh, killing a a fly on your friend's forehead with a 10-pound hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Where there is true Christianity, what is true in the world, that enmity, ...and violence... ...you find the exact opposite in the church. And it's, it's the distinguishing mark... ...of the people of God. Individuals who are so used... ...to, to, to fighting... And, ...and quarreling... ...whose... whose ...claws are red with blood... ...they come into the church... And and, and they can't understand how a people that are not perfect can have so much harmony among themselves. And our answer is, Christ has saved us. Christ has saved us. He's the one who's doing all this. Let's hurry on to the third. Because if peace is surprising, Even more surprising is the third essential peculiarity of citizens of the kingdom of God, and that is joy. We don't normally think this way, that the people of God will be distinguished for their joy. Now, tomorrow, as we learn about the Holy Spirit, we will see that this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But again, remember, Paul's concern is about what can be seen. In other words, the kingdom of God is that place where there is real joy. There is real blessedness. There is a real sense of fulfillment that the world knows nothing of. The world tries to Come up with imitations. They they go and drink their heads off, and think that that's that's real happiness. <laughs> then the following morning they've got a hangover. That's that's not joy. That's not joy. Here is joy that is born from the new birth. This is joy that is born from the free pardon that we have from this holy God. This is joy that comes from knowing the grace of God in our lives. We we cannot come to the point where we get over the fact that the God of heaven has given the best of heaven for the worst of the earth to make us his very own children. And all this inevitably results in in thanksgiving and praise to God. And that's one reason why the church is the one body institution on earth that is full of singing, beautiful singing, joyful singing. It's because we've got so much to thank God for, so much to praise him for. And it's really from the depth of our hearts that we joyfully sing. I've never forgotten Soon after, I became a Christian, so that's a good 40 years ago, um, attending a uh, a church in one of the uh, towns in Zambia, and the the pastor preached a a beautiful, simple, but beautiful sermon, and then um, he taught the congregation a song that has really remained on my heart. I won't attempt to sing it, but I, I will recite it. And it went, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. My heart is overflowing. My love just keeps on growing. Here in the grace of God I stand. And then it had these lines repeated. And I will praise you, Lord. And I will praise you, Lord. And I will sing of all that you have done. And then the last two lines, three lines rather. A joy that knows no limit. A lightness in my spirit. Here in the grace of God I stand. I've never forgotten as a young believer thinking... Wow, this song so perfectly expresses how I feel. I can sing this song all the way to heaven. Well, friends, that's true Christianity. It's true Christianity. This is what differentiates Christian righteousness from that of Legalistic righteousness. Because Christian righteousness is full of joy. When you have individuals who are righteous and any sign of joy, they want to pour water on it That's Phariseeism. It's not Christianity. Genuine Christians are full of joy in righteousness. But also, this is what makes Christian peace differ from lifeless peace. The lifeless peace of the spiritually dead. And in that sense, the most peaceful place on earth is the graveyard. Because nothing moves there. Nothing moves. And where there is the absence of true spiritual life, the way in which there is peace is this. Nobody has anything to do with anybody else. Leave me alone with my life. And the other one, I don't want to have anything to do with that person. It all looks peaceful because there's death. But where there is real spiritual life, there's joy, there's fervency, there's activity, and there's still peace among the people of God. Because they've learned what we saw in Colossians. To overlook so much, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, and so on, in the midst of that spiritual life. In other words, when Paul says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, it is All three ingredients at the same time. So it's not, well, at least we have righteousness here. (laughs) while we are tearing each other apart, but we have righteousness. It's a three-legged stool. All three legs are there in perfect proportion. And you know, this must be God. The evil one can reproduce eating and drinking and observing days. He can easily reproduce that because it's all outward. And as I said at the beginning, you can do all that and still go to hell. But show me somebody whose life, Challenges me in terms of ethics and morality. Who is concerned about relationships in the home, relationships in the church, very concerned, and who bubbles over with the joy of the Lord? You've given me a brother. And the sister I want to go to. That's the distinct peculiarities of the kingdom. That's what we should be looking for. And rejoicing in. In this glorious kingdom. This is what when visitors come. And they mingle among us. They, they, they should be able to say, but you know, how come you live like this? How come in this world, how can it be? And as we shall be seeing tomorrow, we'll point them to the Savior who has sent his spirit into the world who is turning sinners into saints. And we can say to them, Come to the Savior and you will also experience what it means to be a real citizen in this kingdom. Let's pray. Eternal and gracious God in heaven, thank you for your glorious kingdom. Thank you for its Distinct peculiarities that cannot be found anywhere else. O oh Lord God Most High, help us as a church on earth to jealously show forth these peculiarities to the world. That we may not be tearing each other apart over mere externals, but rather that we might prioritize that which you yourself have prioritized. Oh, goodness, peace and joy. Oh, that these three ingredients might so shine forth as to cause the world to take note and to seek your Son as Savior. We plead for this, for his name's sake. Amen.